Right, so if you have your Bibles, we're in Hebrews chapter 3. Now, um, I don't know if you guys, how much you remember, we've been in Hebrews chapter 3 for a couple weeks, but what, if anything, do you remember about Hebrews chapter 3? Now, our Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, so let me tell you this, the book of Hebrews is steak. Everybody say steak. What kind of steak do you guys like? <laughs> I eat tri-tip. If I'm ever going to make a steak, it's always tri-tip. Every once in a while I'll make a steak, but nine times out of ten it's tri-tip. So in the Bible we have two different concepts. One is milk and one is, one is meat. And, and we, we understand that as it translates to a baby. And a baby, um, a real baby, doesn't eat meat. They're just not old enough. And, and yet as you grow, you begin to eat more solid foods, right? A baby starts on just milk, and, and then as they progress, they progress on to more solid foods. God uses that in the Bible as an example of, of spiritual things. That when you're first a born-again believer, you're new to Christ, you're not ready to digest meat. That you, um, you drink milk, you drink a bottle for a while, and there comes a season. And the bottle's not bad, because the bottle is the important and the basic and the elementary things of the gospel. But, but all those things are for salvation. And, the, and, and, and Paul says, I fed you on milk for a season, and rightfully so. And part of milk, the Bible says, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that is the essence of the gospel. And so milk isn't necessarily bad, but there does come a season in our lives where we, we want to mature, we want to grow. And it's good because we just came out of the gospel of James. And in the gospel of James, um, J- uh, Jesus' little brother, um, he gives us this kind of straightforward encouragement for us to grow up as believers. For us to mature in our faith and, and, and stop being babies and stop acting like babies in issues and, and, and growing in our faith and growing up. And then we get to Hebrews, and, and the writer of Hebrews is very intellectual and very straightforward. And he gives us warnings, and very serious warnings. And, and, and he goes on, and he gives us really what we call meat of the gospel. So hopefully we'll serve up a steak today. Now the theme uh, around the warnings, we'll get to the warnings in a minute, because there's six warnings in the book of Hebrews that we're going to cover one of them today that's, that's um, repeated from last week. But before we do, just a reminder that part of the premises of Hebrews is that Paul is writing to Hebrew Christians. He's writing to Jews that have become Christians. And what he's going to do is he's building a case for Jesus. So the book of Hebrews, you could say, is all about Jesus. It's about that Jesus and who Jesus is. And Paul establishes in chapter 1 that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God and he's greater than the angels. And then he goes on, and because Moses is such an important character in Hebrew faith and in Jewish faith and in Jewish culture and custom, he's going to make a case in chapter 3 that Jesus is better than Moses. And he's not going to knock Moses in order to do that, but he's going to elevate the position of Jesus in the mind of the Hebrew, who, who, who Moses to this day is, is, a, is a giant in the faith to the Jew, to the Hebrew. But Jesus is yet better than, better than Moses. And then the book of Hebrews, in a second theme, is, is surrounded with six warnings. Last week, the warning, does anybody remember? Actually, not last week. I wasn't here. Pastor Jay covered for me. I preached in uh, Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City last week for Pastor Terry, and Jay covered my pulpit. Jay, I heard Jay did a really good job, yes? Yeah, amen. So that was exciting. Um, and so um, if we look at last week or two weeks ago in chapter 2, The warning was, therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. 
So the warning that Paul gave in chapter 2, he's going to double down on in chapter 3. And that's just simply this. That, that, that you can, in your Christian walk, you can drift away. You can walk away from the Lord. You, you can have seasons in your life of maturity and of growth. And then you can, you can turn and walk away from God. And it's a warning. It's something that, that Paul is concerned about, that the writer of, of Hebrews is, is telling you and I to be on our guard for. Listen, if God warns you of something, if God tells you the bridge is out, if God tells you that, that, that something is coming in your future, or there's a warning biblically, it's not there because we don't need it. You know the Bible says 365 times to not be afraid? Now, if the Bible warns us and encourages us and tells us 365 times not to be afraid, why would it do that? Because there's probably a tendency in our hearts towards fear, and I think we'd all agree with that. So when God repeats something so many times, and when he says something, there's always a good reason for it. And again, as as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we would agree that we've probably known people or seen people, or maybe even in our own lives, where where we've been really on fire for God, and where we've we've tended, and where we have this tendency to drift or or to fall away. And Paul's concerned. Paul's concerned. It's a problem in the church. You know, I talked to one of my best friends uh, yesterday on the phone for a little bit. It's a kid I grew up with, been friends since like the third or fourth grade. He lives in Oregon now. And uh, we're going we're gonna to go together. I told you guys in August I'm doing a wedding for another one of our friends that I grew up with, Josh, who was here on a Sunday morning. And Lydia and I are going to San Diego in August to do his wedding. And another friend of mine is going to meet me at the wedding. And, and he, um, I spoke with him yesterday. And I was encouraging him in this, and I've seen him in his life um, kind of drift away a little bit and at times be really close to God and at other times fall from the Lord. And I told him that whatever box that you put God in in your life, God will stay in. And, and, and you know, not, not that you can box God into anything, but, but stay with me for a minute. Or, or whatever position you put the Lord in in your life, that, that God will stay in that position. And I was encouraging my friend that God is going to honor that position. So if you want God in second position or third position or fourth position in your life, and you, know, you, you, you have things in your life that you like to hang on to, you have things in your life that maybe you're embarrassed if, if God is a part of or you still like to do, then we choose where we put God in our life. And if you put God in a certain box in your life, he's going to honor that. And, and I know why he does that. You would think that what's best for you, that maybe God would, would just, just continue to, to draw you and call you or be, be closer to you than, you know, because that's what's best for you, than you've invited him to be. But God doesn't do that. And, and part of the reason that, that God comes as close to you as you want him to is that one day you're going to stand before God on judgment day and you're going to have reward. And listen, if, you've, if you chose in your life to put God first, if you chose in your life to put God in first position and everything in your life, now he's going to reward you for that. That you, of your own choice and your own free will, he didn't force you. He didn't force himself into parts of your life that, that you have willingly invited him to be Lord over every part of your life. There's a reward that goes with that. And, and, and the reality is, and, and myself included, right, we sometimes keep the Lord at arm's distance. There's things in our lives that we do that, you know, places that we go and we don't necessarily want the Lord there. You know, Jesus' little brother capitalized on this, right? And he said, if you draw near to me, I will, God says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. How close to God do you want to be in your life? You know, one of the things that frustrates me sometimes as a pastor 
And, and, and I try to be sensitive and loving. And people tell me that, that, that God is not um, taking care of certain thing in their life. God didn't deliver. God didn't come through in this area of their life. God, God didn't show up and, and heal and, and do what they expected God would do. And they're frustrated with God. And then I have to lovingly tell them that they, they didn't invite God into that part of their lives. They, they've kept God out of that part of their lives. And now when God doesn't take care of it, don't blame God that he didn't take care of that part of your life. You didn't bring him into that part of your life. You, 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 cho- you chose to keep him um, out of your life. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And so the biblical principle is to, to seek God first in every area of your life. Put God in first position, and God will honor that position. So we're going to, and all that, you guys, it, it is in Hebrews 3 that um, what, what I'm sharing. Let's, let's look at what it says in verse 1. It says, therefore, holy brethren. So first of all, Paul's talking to holy brethren. He's talking to Hebrew Christians who, who are living in a day very unique. Only one time in human history did a generation born under the law of Moses, die under the grace and the dispensation of the blood of Jesus Christ. We've always lived under the dispensation of grace of the blood of Jesus Christ. But this one particular generation that Paul's speaking to, when they were born, they related to God under the law of Moses. And when they died, they related to God under salvation through grace, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There were still daily sacrifices being taken place in the temple. And so they're they're Hebrew Christians, not necessarily all Jewish ethnically. They came from all over. You know, when I say the term to you, um, this person is Jewish, what do you think? What what comes to your mind if I say um, Emmanuel or I say Joshua is Jewish? Do you think I'm talking about, do you hear uh, ethnicity or religion? And, and, and to some people, when you say somebody's Jewish, what they hear is like saying he's Catholic or he's Baptist or he's Pentecostal or he's, you know, it's a denomination. Or to other people, if you say he's Jewish, what they might hear is, is like Mexican or Spanish or Japanese or that it's, it's an ethnical term. Well, really, the term Jew can be both and correctly used both ways. Sometimes when you say Jewish, you are talking about somebody's religion and how they practice. Or you can say Jewish, meaning that their parents were of ethnic, his mom, in order to be a Jew, your mom has to be Jewish, be Jewishly ethnic. Well, in, in, in this day, and these people that Paul is speaking to, many of them were religiously Jewish, but not necessarily ethnically Jewish. They could have been from all over, but they were holy brethren. So he's talking to Christians, not those outside the faith, partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle of the high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. So um, this kind of throws me for a loop. Does verse 1 throw anybody for a loop that it calls Jesus here an apostle? What does that mean? Never, never really thought of Jesus in the term of apostle, right? But it says here very clearly that Jesus is an apostle. The Greek word apostle, it means sent one. And so in a broader term, um, we are all apostles to some degree. Jesus said, as the Father has apostle or sent me, I send you. Jesus said that in John chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, I have sent you. And so Jesus is the apostle. He is the one that God sent. We have the 12 apostles. And listen, of the, of the office of the 12 apostles, there, there's no new apostles today. 
the 12 apostles, because the Bible says that the 12 apostles' names, in Revelation it says that their names will be written on the, the, the temple or upon the gates of heaven. On the foundations of heaven will be written the names of the 12 apostles. And so that's eternal. That's all for eternity. There's only 12 names that are going to go on that wall. So the 12 disciples and apostles that Jesus trained, Judas won't be there. Judas's name is removed. Judas' won't be, um, name will not be written on the, on the walls of heaven, on the gates of heaven. So there's 11 we know for sure. And then the 12th one, when Judas fell and he went and hung himself, in Acts chapter 3, the disciples, um, they drew straws and they picked a guy named Matthias to take Judas's place. But the thing about Matthias is he's never heard of before and he's never mentioned again afterwards anywhere in the Bible or anywhere else. Josephus doesn't write about him. He just kind of disappears into thin air. And then a few chapters later, we meet a guy named Saul and God knocks him to the ground and blinds him with a great white light. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord, that I might serve you? And God raises up the great apostle Paul who goes on and writes half of the New Testament. And that was, that was God's choice to replace Judas. And the disciples got a little ahead of themselves in picking a guy named Matthias. So I personally believe that Judas's spot on the, the temple in heaven or on the gates of heaven will be replaced by the name Paul. And so we'll have the 11 disciples minus Judas plus Paul. So sometimes you'll hear people today um, want to give somebody the title or the name of an apostle. But unless they're, they're you know, here's what you can ask somebody. If they, if they know an apostle or they've seen an apostle, just ask them if their name is going to be written on the gate of heaven. And if their name is not going to be written on the gate of heaven, then they're not the apostle. You know, Pastor Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel, I can remember um, people wanted to tag him and they would ask, you know, is, is Pastor Chuck a modern day apostle? Because um, Calvary Chapel was, was not a church in 1965. And, and in 1994, Calvary Chapel had become the largest evangelical denomination in the world, and millions of lives were changed, and millions of people were changed. And, and so because of the work that God did through this one man of, of starting a church and raising people up and sending them out that started churches, they say, is, is he a modern-day apostle? And the answer is no. He, he, he may have, and we can say he has the office, not the office, but he has the ministry of an apostle, but the actual 12 apostles, that's closed, that's over, there's only 12, will only be 12, and, and, and we can do. And then on a broader sense, because the term apostle just means sent one, we're all apostles. So when you guys see me in the hallway after church, say, hi, Apostle Chris. And then I'll say, hi, Apostle Dan, how are you? No, don't do that. <laughs> um, but but in, in, in really, in, in reality, we're sent by God. And so in that term, we make apostle. But Jesus is the apostle. Now, real quick, it goes on. What does it say after apostle in chapter 3, verse 1? High priest. What does that mean that Jesus is the high priest? So we have this title. We get this kind of new thing in Hebrews. Um, Jesus is our high priest. Now, um, Paul's going to spend a whole chapter describing the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So uh, we're going to preach that. We're going to cover that. It's really important that you understand this, okay? So I, I'm going to spend a lot of time within a couple of weeks. I'll just give you a little spoiler alert because he mentions here as the high priest, okay? The, here's the problem. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Anybody agree? Amen, yes? So Jesus being King of kings and Lord of lords is also high priest, but that creates a problem in God's economy. Because God said that no one person could be both priest and king in, in, in the Levitical law or in the law of Moses. 
And so Saul, do you remember the first king of Israel? David's the first recognized king of Israel. We have a guy named Saul who was a, was a worldly king, and he was six foot eight, and he had long, beautiful hair, and he was the most handsome guy on the planet, and he was charming, and he was, he was a, a, a rico suave, and everything of the world would look at this guy like he is rightfully a leader and a king. He was the first king of Israel, and God removed his, his leadership and then didn't even recognize him as the first king of Israel because he acted as both priest and king. He made sacrifices as a priest and acted as king, and for this reason he sinned greatly against God because it was forbidden in the law for one person to be both priest and king. So how is it then? So, so God has a problem with Jesus when Jesus when he sends his son Jesus because Jesus is both priest and king. So how, how does Jesus, who has to, in order to be sinless and perfect, has to follow the law of Moses and, and, and be able to be yet both priest and king and then not commit the sin that Saul did? So, so Saul and the priest of Saul's day and, and the priest, in order to be a high priest, you had to be a, a descendant of Aaron. And that's why we call it the Aaronic priesthood or, or the Levitical priesthood, because you also then had to be from the tribe of Levi. So in order to be a priest today in Israel, the Temple Institute is going to rebuild the third temple in Israel today next to where the Dome of the Rock is. They already have the artifacts. They already have all of the the things for sacrifice, the bronze laver. They have all the decorations and furniture for the new temple. And as soon as they can come up with some kind of peace plan or some way to build the Jewish temple, the new temple, um, they're going to build it. From the, 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 the Temple Research Institute, it's in the old city. You can stand there in their museum, and it's big, and you can see the Dome of the Rock a few hundred yards away. And, and, and there will come a day when they will rebuild the Jewish temple. But in those, they're, they're going to need um, priests, and they're going to have to choose a high priest. But every one of them has to be from the tribe of Levi because it's, it's, the, it's the Levitical tribe of the priesthood. In the Old Testament, we meet a guy, and Paul's going to talk about it, named Melchizedek, a priest of, of Melchizedek. And he shows up to Abraham, and he comes along the scene, and Abraham worships him, and, and Melchizedek receives the worship of Abraham, which is very unique in the Bible. Whenever somebody bows down to an angel, the angel says, get up, I'm not worthy of worship. But for some reason, this character in the Bible named Melchizedek, he receives Abraham's worship and his tithe. And then later we learn that that same Melchizedek, it says that Jesus is a priest under the order of Melchizedek. And so God solves his own problem by sending Jesus, and you find out that Melchizedek is Jesus, a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus in the, in the Old Testament, in the flesh. And so Jesus is a priest under the order of Melchizedek. And it solves the problem. And now he, he avoids the curse and, and can, can follow the law. And he can be both priest and king because he's not a priest under the Levitical priesthood. So we'll get into that. We're going to preach that and study that when Paul talks about it. He's going to spend a whole chapter explaining that and, and teaching that. That's just a quick spoiler alert. In verse 2 it says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also faithful in all his house. For his, this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Another place where the Bible simply says Jesus is God, very plainly, that Jesus built all things, 
and that he who builds all things is God. And it says that, that, that Moses is great. Now, again, you guys, today in Israel, Moses is, um, and without receiving Jesus as Messiah and not having any New Testament characters, um, Moses is the, the, the hero of Israel, and rightfully so. He was mightily used of God. Even to this day in, in Passover that we celebrated this morning in our church in communion, when we get to the part where it says, do this in remembrance of me um, for thousands of years, and even to this day in Israel, when they get to that part, they say, do this in remembrance of Moses, because the Passover is about Moses and what Moses did. And so they highly honor Moses, and Moses is highly respected, and rightfully so. But the writer here of Hebrews, speaking to these Hebrew Christians, wants them to understand that, that Jesus is just greater than Moses. But he didn't have to knock Moses in order to elevate Jesus. He said Moses was great, and Moses was a faithful servant in his house, and that's the house of Israel. When I read that line in verse, in, in verse number 5, and it says, And Moses indeed was found faithful in his house. You know, it kind of convicts me a little bit. I wonder, what would God say about me? What would God write about you? Would God write those, and those things about you in his word that you're a faithful servant? And I hope so. You know, the Bible says one of the things we all look forward to, right? is the Bible says that when you stand before God one day and he's going to say to you, hopefully, right, to all of us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of thy Lord. And so we all hear that. We all long to hear the Lord tell us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And, and here the Lord praises Moses and, and, and gives testimony that, that and Moses' life wasn't perfect. Lots, lots of problems. We've been studying the life of King David on Wednesday nights, and that guy had amazing tremendous amounts of sins and yet after the death of david god mentions him like four times in the next books and every time he says man my servant david was awesome he was great he was faithful he was so and nothing negative just all good 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 about david and i'm like i didn't god are you sure you read this last chapter and did you see what he did god's like yeah yeah i know what he did i forgave him i love him anyways he's he i love his heart yeah he made some mistakes but he's got an amazing heart He's a man after my own heart, God says. And so we look at the outside, and God looks at the heart. And even though David made many mistakes on the outside, he was a, he was a man that had just an amazing heart to love God. And God honors that. God will honor that in your life and my life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said. And in this, all the law and the prophets is fulfilled in this one word, love. Love one another. And so Moses, God only has good things to say to him. But the point that Jesus is making is that um, that that Christ is better. And um, he says that, yeah, Moses was faithful in the house, but he said Jesus built the house. And, and the builder of the house is, receives more glory than the house, right? Any of you guys uh, uh, have a loved one that went through some kind of surgery or some kind of procedure and you got to thank the doctor for, uh, or thank somebody for helping one of your family members out? Can you imagine if somebody in your family had a surgery and you walk in the hospital room and the, the person is there on the bed and next to the bed is the tools, the scalpel, the thing, and the doctor is standing there and you, you walk into the room and you say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, you, and the doctor is like, oh, yeah, you know. And, and as you're approaching him, you're just, oh, just thanking him so much. And you just walk right by him and you go to the table where the scalpel is and you pick the scalpel up and you're like, thank you, scalpel. You saved their life. You did such a good job cutting and like weird right like no 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 just that's just a tool 
The doctor is the one who used the tool, and God is the one who uses the tools. And you and I are the tools. And God is the one who deserves the glory and the credit. And Paul makes that case that, yes, Moses was, was great, but it was God was the one that used him. It was God was the one that um, did him. Now, the last thing as we get, as we get, until we get into the next section. Um, now, one of the, the tendencies of these Hebrew Christians, and one of the things that the Bible um, combats a lot, and, and if this is an area where, you know, you don't understand or maybe you struggle a little bit, uh, I would encourage you in reading the book of Galatians. It's five chapters. It'll take you 20 minutes to read. The book of Romans, a little bit longer, but still a, a short read. Romans and Galatians. But one of the tendencies that Paul is dealing with with these, with these Hebrew Christians was their tendency to go back to the law, was to go back to the law of Moses. And I can sympathize with them a little bit. Because I didn't, I didn't walk in their shoes, and, and I don't know what it would have been like to grow up my whole life following the law and going to the temple for sacrifices and, and, and doing rituals, and then all of a sudden not have to do that stuff anymore. And, 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 and so, but their tendency was to go back. The temple was still in existence. It, was, it would not be um, sacked for another 35 years. And so every day the animal sacrifices were taking place, the ceremonies and rituals and services were taking place in the temple. And so the tendency of these new believers in Jesus was to go back to those things that they one time knew. And Paul is saying, don't go back to the law, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is sufficient. All you need is Jesus, nothing more and nothing less. And don't go back to these things. And I think before we we judge these, these Hebrew Christians too much, like why would they want to go back to the law? Like Jesus just told them they could eat bacon. Jesus just told them they could sleep together on a queen-size bed or a king-size bed. Jesus just gave them shrimp and lobster and told them it was cool. Why would you go back to the law? But, you know, really the, the reality is for all of us, even today in the church, one of our biggest struggles as a, as a people, as a group, is our tendency to legalism. And it's something we have to be on our guard for. Legalism is a killer in the church. Legalism gives the church a black eye and, and legalism destroys Eventually, what legalism leads to is when, you know, we're self-righteous and we're legalistic and we want to relate to God, not based on relationship, but a bunch of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. Then we think we're better because we follow those rules and we do those things. And um, eventually you take that to its end and you end up with those guys that, you know, stand on a street corner with a sign that says God hates fags. And I promise you, Jesus wouldn't act that way. And that's not the heart of God. Nor, nor is it the, the desire of God for any of us to be um, or we become self-righteous and we think we're better than other people because we follow rules and regulations and laws. And God doesn't want that. God said that it's all summed up in, in, in one word, love. But our tendency is because in every, every, every other area or aspect of life, it makes sense, right? In, in, your, in your place of business, and especially for you men, you know, there's, there's a pride, and rightfully so, there's a, in, in doing well at work and getting a promotion, and, and you earn that. You earn that by, by what you do and, you, you know, in your social structures and in, in, in sports or whatever it is that you do, you, you earn those promotions, you earn those raises, you earn that respect. And so and then when you get in God's economy and, and you don't earn it, God just does it because he wants to and he does it in spite of you and because he loves you and you can't earn favor with God. Now, what does that mean? That God doesn't, you don't have to, you know, read your Bible and pray and, and, and do the things that the, that the Bible encourages you to do. No, that's not what that means. 
But listen, if you read your Bible every day and pray and you think because you do that, then God's going to bless you or because you do that, then God's got to show up in your life or because you do that, then God's going to somehow miraculously do something. It's not going to work for you. It's not it's not the point. You do those things because it's relationship. It's relational and you want to do those things. We don't do those things to check a box. We don't do those things to earn favor with God. You can't earn any more favor with God. God can't love you anymore. God so crazy loves you. The Bible says that the father loves you, listen, as much as he loves his son. And I'm pretty sure he's pretty fond of Jesus. You know, um, I, I struggle with it as well. And, and one of the things is, you know, I'll have a week, man, and I'll, I'll, I'll be studying the chapter that I'm teaching for hours, and I'll get up every morning, and I'll pray in the Spirit, and I'll, I'll spend lots of time with God, and I'll really pour over the message and spend, you know, 20 hours plus hours studying for a message and, and praying and doing everything right, and I'll come on Sunday morning, and I'll think, God, this is really going to be a great message because, you know, all these things I did, I did all these things you wanted me to do, or I, I did it, you know, I really, it really worked good this week. I was good this week. God, you're going to bless it. And it's the worst message ever. It's the worst time. And, um, and God just does that. He does that to show something to me. It's not about me. It's not about what I put in or what I do. It's about him. And there's other weeks where I've had terrible weeks and I've been busy and I, you know, hardly could spend any time studying and prepping and was, was getting called out and working and busy and just had a legitimate hard week. And, you know, I show Sunday mornings, I think, oh, my gosh, I got nothing. And then, and then just to show me that it's not about me, that, that'll be the best Sunday that I've had in, in forever. And I'm not saying that's the formula to have a good Sunday. That's not what I'm saying. That God doesn't want that. And I'm supposed to be diligent. The Bible says, study to show thyself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But, but at times God has done that to show me that, that it's not about me. It's about him. And, and, and he's going to bless me in spite of me. And he loves me whether I, I, I do all those things or not. I'm not discouraging those things. I'm encouraging the things of prayer and the things of, that God wants us to do. But what I am discouraging is what can come with that, and that's an attitude that I'm, I'm better or I deserve it because I did A, B, or C, right? All right, and then, and then we're, we're almost done here, you guys, so we got one more thing to cover. And it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the days of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, somebody say, beware, brethren, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. There's a warning from departing from the living God. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? You know, one of the things that, that we get, one of the questions we get is that can you lose your salvation or can't you lose your salvation? And I'll listen, I, here's what I want to tell you. My, my, my official position on is that I, I don't have one. I'm not gonna, definitely not going to argue with you, and I'll tell you that it's a circular argument. We have a very, very, very famous, popular um, pastor who's written lots of books and whose name you would pro- most likely recognize if I said it. And, and he believes that you can never lose your salvation. And he has a pastor on staff, true story. And this pastor is serving in his church for lots of years. And, and then he has some moral sin in his life, cheats on his wife. He gets fired. He starts hanging out at the bar and he becomes a very vocal and very devout atheist. 
and, and he's vocal about it because of his position in the church at one time. And, and, and people want to listen to him because he'll tell people there's no God. And he knows because he used to work in the church. And people came to this pastor and they said, well, what about this guy? You say nobody can lose their salvation. Did this guy lose his salvation? And this pastor will respond, no, you can't lose your salvation. He was never saved in the first place. And on and on and on we go. So then you say, oh, no, 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 he lost his salvation. No, he wasn't saved. No, he lost his salvation. He wasn't saved. I mean, it, it's a circular argument. There, it, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot personally walked with Jesus for three years. I mean, none of us got to do that. I mean, if anybody, right? And, and, and did Judas Iscariot lose his salvation when, when he betrayed Jesus? Some would say, yeah, he lost his salvation. Others would say, no, he never had it in the first place. But I'm not the judge of somebody's heart. I don't know if that pastor was genuinely saved and still is or if that pastor was genuinely saved and walked away. I just know this. I want to stay as close to Jesus as I can so I never have to worry about whether I can lose my salvation or not. And, and, and when we get into the debate, the debate is circular. Nobody's going to win. They've been arguing about it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Intellectual guys, a lot smarter than us, and they still haven't figured it out. Nobody's won the argument whether you can lose your salvation or not because the argument is circular. But here's my encouragement. I've never once in the world had somebody um, who was just so on fire for Jesus and just loving God with all their heart come up to me and say, Hey, Pastor, can, can, can you lose your salvation? Never once. But I have people that like to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the church. They, they want to know. And so you don't have to worry about it. I think the Bible, you could probably make a pretty good case for both. I mean, there's a legitimate case in the Bible where people were walking with God and, and then they were not and going to hell. And, and so, again, were they, were they walking with God and they lost their salvation? Or, as some would say, no, they, didn't, they weren't walking with God and lost their salvation. They just were never really saved in the first place. Which is it? I don't know. So I'm not going to argue with you. And I don't know men's hearts. I can't read God's hearts. That's God's job anyways. I don't even have to worry about it. What I have to do is just stay as close to God as I can, that, that it, it never becomes an issue. And I will say that there, there, there's just a legitimate warning in your life and in my life to live your life in such a way that you don't drift away from God. Is it possible to drift away in your faith? 100%. You know, you do simple things in your life relationally. You spend time with Jesus every day. You, you get in the habit of reading your Bible and praying every day. And not that that's the end-all, be-all, but I guarantee you those are steps towards not falling away and staying in a place in your life where you're, where you're on fire and where you're loving God. And, it, and it's an absolute real fear and tendency that the Bible warns us about that we should be, we should be aware of. Now, um, I said close like three times. This is my third and my final close. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So, so the Bible says exhort one another. That means encourage one another and tell one another, hey, this is sin. This is a problem. Hey, come back to church. We miss you. You need to be in church. Oh, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. No, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you should want to go to church. And the Bible says, do not forsake the gathering of the brethren together. There's a real function in, in us gathering together on a weekly basis, whether, you know, it's, it's, it's life-changing every Sunday or not. God is absolutely doing something in your heart right now by you being here. And if you continue in this, God will continue that work, and it will protect you from, from 
extremes and from falling away. And so um, he says to exhort one another. That means encourage one another. Tell somebody when something's going on in their life in a loving way. In verse 14, it says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. When, so the Bible says today is the day of salvation. So what this means basically is, have you ever felt the Holy Spirit convicting your heart? Have you ever felt maybe your heart beat fast and you knew God was speaking to you? The Holy Spirit was calling you to salvation, to, to something, to stop something, to do something. To, to, and that it says when you feel that, be obedient to what it is God's telling you. When the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you about something, today is the day of salvation. Today is God's word. Tomorrow is the devil's word. And the devil doesn't need to get you twisted. He just needs to tell you, hey, you can do it tomorrow. You can do it tomorrow. You can do it tomorrow. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life and not as in the rebellion. An example is all the children of Israel. And it says, for who having heard rebelled indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt and led by Moses? Now with whom he was angry 40 years, was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? To whom, he did not, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who, who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter the promised land because of unbelief. You know, there's only one sin, ultimately, that's going to be unforgivable that will send people to hell. It's unbelief, right? It's the, it's the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. You rejecting the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ in unbelief. I don't care, you know, and, and sometimes we don't always like it, but murderers and rapists and really, really, really crummy people can get saved and go to heaven. Their sins can be forgiven. But what's the sins that can't be forgiven is you denying what, what Jesus Christ said. And here, here the Apostle Paul tells us that the, the sin of the children of Israel and why they didn't get to enter the promised land was unbelief. And, and that Jesus is is greater than Moses. And, and listen, why would you go back to the law of Moses? Why would you want to go back to these Old, old Testament and these old tendencies? And, and he's pointing out that, look, it didn't even work for Moses. You put Moses up on this shelf, and, and, and the law of Moses couldn't even lead these people into the promised land. And they all died because of unbelief, and Jesus is greater. And all you need is Jesus. You know, Moses was an amazing, amazing person in the Bible. Moses' life divides into four. He died at 120 years, three 40-year periods of his life. Moses was born a Hebrew, and Pharaoh was killing all the Hebrew babies at the time Moses was born. So his mom, in faith, made a basket, and she put him in the crocodile-infested Nile River, and she floated him down. And by, and by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, he landed in front of the Pharaoh of Israel's daughter, the very princess of Egypt. And, and the Bible says as, as, the, as the basket came in front of her, the baby Moses began to cry. The Holy Spirit pinched him right about that time. And she picks him up and her heart is broken for him. And she tells her servant, go into the Hebrew women and find someone who can nurse this baby for me. I'm going to raise him as my own. And, and the servant goes into the Hebrew women looking for a woman to, to nurse this baby that Pharaoh's daughter finds. And guess who she picks? Moses' mom. And, and, and in that season, um, Moses' mom must have um, poured into him God, and he knew who he was. Because when he was weaned, she left, and he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. 
Josephus tells us that Moses was a, a conquering warrior in the Egyptian army as a leader and a general, and he led and won battles. And at 40 years old, Moses sees uh, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and he goes, and it says he looks one way, and he looks the other, and he kills the, the Egyptian um, man there because he was a man of war. He knew how to fight. He was a soldier. And, and, and he was somebody. I mean, Moses drove a Lamborghini to high school. He was a baller. He had big diamonds in each ear. He was all that. His dad was king. His dad was pharaoh. And, and he was being raised to be the next, the next pharaoh, next king of, his, of, of Egypt. And something happened in his heart when his mom raised him because how would he know he was a Hebrew if his mom who nursed him wasn't pouring into him the love of God? And the next day he came back to the place where he killed the Egyptian and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he said, what are you guys doing? Why are you fighting among yourselves? And one of them said, are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And he knew he, knew he, was, he was caught. And then, and then he left. He fled because, because he knew the Pharaoh would kill him. And, and as he fled, the Bible says that he chose the, 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 the Lord over the passing pleasures of this world. What were the passing pleasures of this world? All of the things that he enjoyed as Egyptian royalty. No more Lamborghinis. No more diamond studs. And he went and he got to a well as he fled from Egypt. And there was a bunch of women at the well. And some rough guys came and were trying to kick the women off the well and rough them up. And Moses protected the women at the well. And one of them fell in love with him. And he married her. And her dad was a shepherd in the desert, in the Midian desert. And, and Moses became a shepherd for 40 years. And at 80 years old, he was, he was shepherding his flock and a bush was on fire. And he walked over to see the fire and, and God began to speak to Moses through the burning bush and told him to go get his people. And then, for, and then he went and got his people and for 40 years they walked around the wilderness in a funeral march because he was going to lead them into Israel and to overcross the Jordan River into the promised land and none of them would go in because of unbelief. And, Mo, and Moses led these folks, and then he didn't get to go in. He broke the symbolism, and he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. The law could never lead us into the promised land. The law can only bring us up to the door. And Moses, who represents the law, could never lead us into the promised land. And God raised up Joshua, and his name in, in, in Greek means Jesus, whose salvation in Joshua, Jesus leads us into the promised land. And Jesus led them into the promised land. Amen? We should stop. I want to keep going. Let's stand. Worship team, you want to come up and can we play half a song? Yay, nay. Maybe we'll sing Jesus Loves Me a cappella or something. I heard this pastor, and again, another one, a different one, well-known pastor, and he was preaching on Moses and the children of Israel. And he said, the children of Israel sent out 12 spies. And the 12 spies came back, and, and Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report, and the 10 came back with a bad report. And the 10 said, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. And this pastor said the reason why the children of Israel didn't go into the promised land was because they had low self-esteem. And if they only thought better of themselves, then they would have had the courage to go in. But the Bible just told us the reason why they didn't go into the promised land was because of unbelief. And, and, and then he went on and he said, every morning, I want you to get up and look yourself in the mirror and say, you are great. 
You are wonderful. You are loved. You are a child of the Most High God. I'm not knocking that. Maybe you guys do that and you like that. Okay, go ahead. Knock yourself out. But do me a favor. What I want you to do is get up every morning and open the Word of God. And rather than look in the mirror and tell yourself you're great every day, look and see what the Word of God will, will say about you and for you. And then the Word of God loves you. The Word of God will tell you you're great too. But that God is great. And, then, and that it's, it's, the faith comes by, by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And listen, unbelief to a people who saw more miracles than anybody will ever see. The children of Israel saw the ten plagues of Egypt. They saw they walked through the Red Sea on dry land. God brought manna every day and fed millions of people in the wilderness with bread from heaven. At night, a cloud, in the day, a cloud would lead them. And at night, a, a pillar of fire would tell them which way to go. And God was with them all the way through. Water would come out of rocks when they were thirsty. When they wanted meat, God made quail fly at their knees that they could hit with clubs so they could eat meat. And they saw so many miracles, and yet they, they had an unbelief in their hearts. And the Bible warns us about it. God wants us to have faith and believe. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation, and that God is calling you, that, 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 that God, that to put your faith and trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.